News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Scientists have discovered barnacles growing on airplane wreckage that washed up after the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370. The barnacles could hold the key in reconstructing the drift paths and answering some of the many questions about the disappearance of that flight. Dr. Nassar Al-Khatan is a research lead and professor of geochemistry at Kuwait University and joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you so much for being here. Here. Good morning, everyone, and thanks for the invitation again. Well, this is such a fascinating story and look at how we might learn more about the disappearance of Malaysian Airlines Flight 370, MH370. How are barnacles growing on that wreckage? How are they part of this mystery? Yeah, so this is the fascinating part. We wouldn't imagine that a really small animal like those barnacles could and can be used to give us hints about the location of the missing plane. Well, those barnacles have multiple stages of life. One of them involves drifting in the ocean until they find a stationary point, a drifting object, let's say, in the middle of the ocean. At that point, they will settle in and they will start growing. What, what is it about that and the growing of the barnacles that offers up the researchers and scientists clues as to, as to what happened to this flight? Perfect. This is a good question. So they have a soft tissue and a hard tissue. The hard tissue, I'm referring to the shells. They have multiple shells. And the way that those shells grow, just like a tree. They just keep adding layers and layers and layers over time. Now imagine this. Every time they precipitate a layer, they record the environment, generally speaking. So in our case, they record the temperature of the water in each layer. So now imagine this. If there was a barnacle that got attached to that flapron, that piece of a wing, in the beginning, immediately after the crash, It is possible that we will have just like a logbook of temperature readings from that point all the way to the discovery, to the time of the discovery of that flapperon on on Reunion Island. So the barnacles record as they grow, they record, like you said, water temperature and that. And does that, is that then by looking at them, you're able to, or, or researchers and scientists would then be able to, to pinpoint better the exact area or know more about where in, the, where in the Indian Ocean the plane is? Well, yeah, this is the thing. Uh, we were able actually to backtrack in time the drifting, let's say, path of that piece of a wing in the Indian Ocean. So since we only have smaller barnacles, we only have a short period of time to work with. In theory, if we were giving access to the larger barnacles that we know that they do exist, we might actually get a longer track, long enough to give us indications about the location of the crash site. This is the plan, actually. Hmm. And I understand, too, that it, this could also help. While there are theories and uh, and uh, approaches as to try and figure out what happened after that plane went off the radar and what happened in that six or eight hours, could the barnacles help with that as well? Not only pinpointing where it is located, but more as to what happened maybe while it was in the ocean? 
Well, uh, regarding this side of the story, they will start recording the moment they got attached to that flatteron. So basically, we will get an idea about what happened after the crash, not before. Right, okay. Starting with the possible crash site, yeah. Right. But you would know then, or, or would they be able to, to tell us or, or give us information about in the water, say if the plane moved in the water or anything, like you said, so anything really that, that happened as far as movement and such after the crash? Exactly, exactly. So basically, we would be able to pinpoint, or let's say not pinpoint, uh, let me say this, there is something called the seventh arc, which is basically an arc in the Indian Ocean that dictates the possible locations of the Christ site based on, let's say, the fuel consumption rate and so on. So by studying those barnacles, we might get the first temperature reading, which we will use to find the exact latitude, let's say, or suggest a possible latitude for the missing plane. This is the first reading. What about the later readings? Again, those barnacles grow by adding layers and layers. We will use those layers to give a record, a temperature record of where did that flapperon move? Did it go south? Did it go north, east, west, all the way to the time of its discovery on that island? Hmm. And and what about the size of the barnacles in that if the barnacles that are the largest uh, and if those and if scientists are able to see that those must have attached quickly after the crash or soon after the crash, would those be the ones then that would be offering up the most information? Exactly. I have to say this first of all. Uh, Professor Gregory Herbert at the University of South Florida, I was working in his paleoecology lab, and he was the first actually among us to notice that, yes, those are barnacles that we can use, and they could be large enough, large enough to give us a longer story, a longer track. We only worked with, with what was published. There are published data of those barnacles. We used those published data to create a drifting track. Now imagine this. What if it was possible for us to acquire those shells, the larger shells? Then it's going to be our responsibility in the paleoecology lab to sample the shells and get a more detailed track, let's say, drifting track for that flapper on. Hmm. So is that what's next in the research or what does happen next? Well, this is what we hope to happen, actually. We now have this study published Everyone will see our work. Everyone will see the potential of our work. So please give us the larger barnacles. Allow us to work on those larger barnacles. And who knows? We might actually give new information so that the search might be resumed again. Right. It's all about those large barnacles. Uh, and you mentioned um, uh, Associate Professor Gregory Herbert at University of South Florida uh, creating that method and and uh, and being the first to kind of really look into this. So when you say give us those barnacles, is that is it a question of getting those for further research or how does that happen? Exactly, for further research. So hopefully the French government, if I'm not mistaken, they... In theory, they do have large barnacles, although there is no official record of them, let's say, on paper. However, if you, want, if you are to go and look into the media, look at the flat run, there are larger shells somewhere. 
there are larger shells somewhere. So basically, if we are to acquire those shells, we might actually begin step two of this project, which is actually getting along the track. And and is that's what Professor Herbert saw, wasn't it? Did he see a photograph or he saw the shells, the barnacles on the plane? And, and that's when he started emailing and getting involved and saying, well, hold on a second. These might hold the key. Exactly, exactly. Professor Herbert was the one who designed the total project. He was one. He was the one to notice, actually, those barnacles. And being the paleoecologist that he is, he knew what kind of tools we can use on those barnacles to extract some useful information. And here we go. We have a geochemist, a paleoecologist, a biologist from different universities working on that project. It took us a while, but eventually we have the study published. It's a fascinating study and uh, and just so interesting to see how this is being done and locating, hopefully, uh, and getting more information on this flight. Uh, Dr. Al-Katan, thank you so much for your time. It was uh, great chatting with you today. Thank you for having me. Dr. Nassar Al-Katan is the research lead and professor of geochemistry at Kuwait University. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it is time to check in with show contributor Scott Chance. Good morning to you. Hi, Jill. How are you? Very well. Yourself? Pretty good. I'm glad it's raining. Really? Yeah. I think a lot of people are glad it's raining today, which we don't say all that often. The, the, totally. It just it feels like fresh, and it was kind of exciting to have some thunder and lightning this morning. <laughs> it was bright, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. All right. We are talking about overrated tourist destinations, and some local attractions have made this list. Yeah, and I think some people might have their uh, have been a little bit like got their shirt in a nod over this because there's some places around here that people absolutely love that have made this list. That uh, USA Today is reporting it, but basically a company took a, all a whole bunch of Google reviews, 23 million Google reviews, right, and <laughs> broke down. Uh, I guess they used an AI or what whatever, and weeded out times that people used the terms tourist trap, overrated, and expensive. And that's how they came up with, with the things that have made this list. So there's a hundred of them. And of course, the, the top ones are not in Canada, but one place in Canada has made the top 10 and it's a local destination. And uh, I know a lot of people love it. I drive past it all the time and it's always very, very, very busy. It sells out all the time and I'm sure we've all been there. And that is the Capilano Suspension Bridge. Oh, so that made the list. And if I'm reading correctly, so that made the list because it being the most overpriced. Yeah, it's uh, $66 to go to Capilano Suspension Bridge, and that lets you go in and use the entire park. And I know that some people do that, and then they kind of come out and feel like, well, that was it. It's just a bridge, mm. you know? And there's like Treetop Village and a bunch of other things there. I really like Capilano Suspension Bridge, but I don't, I, I think that once you've kind of gone and seen it, that's kind of it. Uh, so, but I mean, it is there. If you're a local, you kind of know that there are other similar suspension bridges that don't cost as much. Right. Like they cost zero. <laughs> so <laughs> Much less. Yeah. I think that, you know, people go, I mean, people are tight to their dollars right now and stuff. So if you go there and expecting, uh, 66 bucks is a lot of money. Um, another Canadian Vancouver location that made the list is Grouse Mountain, uh, specifically for the Grouse Grind. I remember when it used to be free to go, if you hiked up the Grouse Grind, it was free to come down because mm. you got to the top yourself. Now, if you hike up the grind and want to come down, it's $20 to mm 
hmm. to download, just to come down. That does seem a little pricey. Yeah, uh, $75 if you want to go up and enjoy the rest of the mountain. But the thing is, there's, there is stuff to do up there. There's like an ice rink and a lumberjack show and like a bunch of hikes and wild birds and, you know, all sorts of fun, viewpoint, all sorts of fun things. So, I mean, I, I'm a huge Gross Mountain fan. I get that 75 is a little much. And I think that if you hike up the grind, you should be able to uh, take the gondola down for free. That's sort of my opinion. Do you have like touristy trap <laughs> places, Jill? Um, I would agree. I didn't realize. So I haven't done the grind in a long time because I don't like it all that much. Okay. But I would agree 20 bucks to download off the mountain, especially since they really discourage you from walking down. Right. Yeah. So it's not like you really have another another choice. So that does seem pricey. Uh, I was interested. This is a little south of here, but Voodoo Donuts, which I'm sure a lot of people have gone to, that made the list as the most overrated tourist attraction as well. Yeah, have you been there? Yeah, I have. It's in Oregon. And uh, my I have some family members who are like huge. They're like, oh, we got to go to Voodoo Donuts every time we're sort of road. My family used to road trip down mm-hmm. the coast a bunch. And it's like Voodoo Donuts. It's so special. It's so cool. It's uh, it's donuts. They sell donuts. <laughs> That's what know? I thought too. That's what it is. Yeah, yeah. I, I've been there once and it's interesting. It's fun, but I, w- I wouldn't make it a destination or think that, oh, every time you're in yes. Portland, you have to go to this donut shop. It's fine. It's good. But there are other really good donut shops. Totally. And that's kind of how I feel about uh, Pike Place Market oh, is also yes. on the list because everyone, it's like, oh, we're in Seattle. We got to go to the place where they throw the fish. And then you see them throw the fish once and it's like, now what do we do? There's no, What else is there here? It's very, very touristy. You can get all your like Seattle Mariners stuff there. Uh, the CN Tower in Toronto is on the list. The Calgary Stampede made the list for most overpriced. Uh, Niagara Falls made the list. All these things that it's like you check the box. People go and check the box. I've seen it. I've done it. And now I want to get on with, with living. Did Niagara Falls make the list? What Was it because it was overpriced? Because I would argue Niagara Falls is worth seeing. It's, it's a pretty spectacular place to go. But I could see how people, maybe you don't need to keep going back or maybe it's too pricey for people. Uh, oh, excuse me. I, the attraction is Skylon Tower at Niagara oh, Falls. Okay, that so, makes more sense. Yeah, I haven't been there. So it's uh, is that not at the falls? I don't know. But okay. I'm seeing it now. Yes, it made it 11th on the overpriced. Yes. And All then right. uh, Byward Market in Ottawa, which I actually think is pretty great. I really like Byward Market. When I went to Ottawa, I thought it was a fantastic place. So obviously people have their opinions about things like this. And uh, if you want to let me know what you think is super overrated here or in our country or in, in Washington state, I'm Scott at CKNW.com. <laughs> All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Thanks, Jill. This is Mornings with Simi. It is time to get the view from Victoria with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. Good morning to you. Good morning, Jill. And before we get to uh, all things political, I must say your uh, footage, you put out a picture of the rain in uh, Victoria. That was quite the sudden downpour. Yeah, we had thunder and and rain here that uh, I was out possibly getting a donut from the (laughs) the local uh, coffee shop and it took five minutes and I got just soaked, just a downpour here. So it was quite, uh, it was quite a drop in temperature and rain here in Victoria the other day, and I gather in Vancouver as well. Mm-hmm, definitely. I, now, I thought you were going to say you were out riding your bike now that you're such an avid no. cyclist, but no. No, I'm done that. I'm back on donuts now. <laughs> very, very nice. Uh, and, and I think you were right. Uh, people welcoming the rain, but also feeling a bit caught off guard by it and with the thunder and lightning. 
Yeah, and you know, we heard from wildfire officials yesterday too that even though the rain is great, you'd need rain for several days to lower the risk of of wildfires. So we kind of get all excited when we have rain for five or ten minutes, but it really doesn't do much in the in the large scheme of things. And lightning can be a risk for new fires too. So it wasn't quite as positive as we uh, as we thought yesterday. No, that is uh, very, very true. Well, let's uh, find out what else is happening. And gas prices, certainly top of mind for people. And as you have pointed out, people do like to blame uh, all levels, I think, of government. Yeah, every time gas prices go up, and we saw on the weekend in Metro Vancouver, you know, I think it was like $2.13 uh, a litre. Uh, a lot of people turn to government. And I think it's because gas pricing is so complicated it is ridiculous it's kind of like when you try to understand the price of gas we're all we're all like cave people trying to understand thunder you know we're shaking our fists at the sky because we don't get it because the system doesn't make sense uh and we have so-called experts that end up on the media talking about this sort of endless bag of excuses about you know downtime and a refinery you've never heard of and the canadian dollar and the get you know price of a barrel somewhere else and um but it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense in the, in the, in the uh, big scheme of things. And so, you know, the BC government spent a lot of time trying to understand gas prices. And, uh, you know, the public tends to turn to the province to say, well, you solve it, you cut your taxes, you do something about it. And the, and the government doesn't really have a lot of wiggle room on it, unless you want to start going after some of the uh, kind of basic tax structure of, of gas. And, um, that seems to be the discussion we are at again uh, in the in the last few days. Well, let's cut taxes, and uh, it's not it's not quite as simple as that uh, when it comes to the price of gas. Unfortunately, do you think it's also because when we had the review and when the province uh, basically said to everybody, uh, "Don't worry, we're going to get to the bottom of this, and we're going to figure out exactly what's happening, and we're going to see if it's those big bad gas companies that are gouging," but they didn't look at taxes, and we found the missing thirteen cents, but they refused to talk about how much was actually going to taxes and I think people kind of saw through that a little bit yeah there's a little bit of that but I mean the bottom line for gas pricing in British Columbia is that we don't have enough gas right and we produce maybe 30 percent of our demand in Metro Vancouver at the Parkland refinery the rest of it comes mainly from the Trans Mountain pipeline from Alberta there's a lot of people out there who hate the pipeline don't want to see it twinned want to see us get rid of it and yet complain about the price of gas, which is, uh, you know, affected by the capacity of the pipeline. And the other part of gas pricing that is very complicated is that 90% of the market in the South Coast is controlled by only four companies, including Parkland, which happens to own, you know, the Esso and Chevron retail arm. So you have a very, very small number of companies in BC controlling most of the kind of distribution and retail and then you have a limited capacity and a kind of, you know, hypocrisy in, in some ways of people who don't like a pipeline that brings in all the gas. And so those are the levers that you could use to change the price of gas. Yes, we could go in and we could browbeat the provincial government to turn the price of gas down on taxes. But then you're going to start doing like taxes only make up a quarter of the price of gas at the pump. And you would have to start doing things like getting rid of the 18 and a half cents a liter for the TransLink tax. And that's a very important source of revenue for TransLink. You know, 40% of its budget is tax revenue. Half of that tax revenue is the fuel tax. And so you'd, you'd, you'd start to seriously impact TransLink. You could get rid of the carbon tax. It's federally mandated. So BC would instantly 
uh, be out of line there. That's almost $3 billion. That's the same price of all of British Columbia's social assistance every year in the budget. You could drop, um, you know, the the other sort of federal excise tax, I guess, if you convinced Ottawa or the GST. But it, it just doesn't it doesn't really work when you start going at that that tax route. And a lot of people who who make the argument about tax cuts and gases have an axe to grind on the carbon tax or an axe to grind on on government in general. But it's in, it is almost impossible to ever see a point when the, the NDP government or even the previous you know uh, liberal government uh, would have been interested in cutting taxes uh, because that's big revenue in the budget and it's uh, it's not something that the governments want to do. No, it's a, it's a good point. We've talked about this before too. They could even, although it would be kind of symbolic, they could stop taxing on top of the taxes and uh, offer a bit of relief that way. Sure, they, they could do that, I guess. I mean, it, the other thing that government has noted, though, in, in its past kind of studying of this is that they, it, it feels strongly that if it did something like that, if it fiddled with a tax here or there, offered a tiny little bit of relief and cost millions of dollars in the budget, that somewhere along the line, one of those four companies would just increase their price to make up the room that is there when government cuts taxes. And we wouldn't really understand it because the pricing system is so insanely complicated and not transparent at all. And we would complain that the price of gas didn't actually go down. Some expert would show up on the news and say, well, actually, we have a momentary shutdown at the Louisiana plant for unscheduled maintenance. So that 10 cents a liter the government just saved by cutting this part of the tax has been taken up. You wouldn't see it. That's government's view is that you would not actually see a sustained lowering of price if it cut taxes because the system would just take the profit somewhere else. And, and I don't know if, I mean, it depends on if you believe that or not, but I think in a system that is so um, difficult to understand, that's a, probably a fairly good point from the province. Well, continuing now with Rob Shaw, political correspondent for Czech News. And Rob, we talked about this when it was announced, the closure of a very popular park, Joffrey Lakes Provincial Park, and the government caught off guard by that. So what is happening with trying to reach some kind of an agreement there? Yeah, I talked to Environment Minister George Heyman yesterday about this and asked him, you know, what does the government intend to do about the Lilawat uh, Nation and the Nikwawa Nation uh, basically shutting off the public from Joffrey Lakes Provincial Park until what they say will be uh, at least the end of September for Truth uh, and Reconciliation Day. And uh, he said, I, I think it was it's kind of interesting because the province is wrestling with what to do here because there are principles of undrip and, and title and, and rights uh, being invoked by the First Nations. Uh, but at the same time, the public is upset that uh, one of the most popular parks in the province has just been shut without any consultation or any uh, discussion. And uh, interesting, you know, George Heyman uh, told me he does not think it's necessary for the nations to close the park to meet their cultural and food gathering and privacy reasons that they have stated. And they want to uh, conduct their traditional uh, ceremonies on the land and don't want the public there. And the province's view is you can do both and you should not be shutting the park, uh, which is is kind of a, a bit of a stronger position than I thought the NDP government was going to take. I thought they were going to basically just disappear on this um, and, and not do anything about it at all because it's so complex. Um, he has urged the leaders uh, of both nations to sit down with him. He was hoping to get word yesterday whether they were going to do that. The province has only really offered 
to cancel the reservations uh, at the park, the free day passes, the, the camping reservations uh, for a short time. And it has uh, hoped that it could negotiate some type of reopening uh, and, and move to bring people back. So he has called it urgent. He said he's told the leaders that it is urgent, that he wants, he will go to the table himself uh, to help negotiate this if they, if they want. Um, but uh, the leaders uh, have said in their statements that they're very frustrated with the province and uh, they have not been uh, quick to respond to the minister's uh, outreach. And wasn't one of the concerns, too, or one of the the reasons given for shutting down the park, saying that they had actually reached out to the ministry, to government officials to talk about this beforehand, but didn't hear back or weren't uh, pleased with the, the amount of or the lack of, of discussion, and that's why they took the move to shut it down? That's right, yeah. A sense of frustration from the nations that they had helped government develop the free sort of day pass system that came in in 2021. They'd signed on 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 a kind of land management strategy with the province on visitor use of the park that was supposed to accommodate their traditional cultural needs. And then when they came to the province recently and asked for space and privacy to do things, they didn't hear anything back from BC Parks. And that led to this shutdown. And that is certainly a failure of something within the BC Park system and Heyman's ministry. He says, the minister says that he didn't know anything about this. He wasn't aware of that frustration until they closed the park and he immediately jumped on the file to get a resolution. That sounds like a failure within government for sure. But the question now is how do you get what he calls kind of a, an outcome that everyone can can live with together? Because he, he, you know, Heyman made the point to me that he said he has told the chief, we all have to live here together. And that although the government respects the UN declaration and the and the rights and title from the courts, um, they have to come up with a solution that works for everyone. And I think that position is going to be very, very complex for a government, an NDP government that has spent so much time, you know, uh, on UNDRIP and on uh, Indigenous rights and title that for that they're going to have to step very carefully here in trying to, to get this park reopened while not uh, appearing to sort of backpedal on, on some of their previous commitments in that area. Right. Even though uh, the park, I mean, it has been open and like uh, we've talked about, that's why they brought in the whole visitor pass and the the having to reserve system because it is such a popular park and there have been issues with garbage, with too many people at some points. But you would think that the First Nations then have been working with people. They've been they've been doing their traditional ceremonies and and things in in the park alongside it's still being open to the public. So I, I'm curious, even looking at the release, trying to figure out exactly what changed or if they're doing this more to kind of take a stand and get more attention paid to it. Yeah, it's difficult because the uh, you know uh, Chief Dean Nelson um, from Lillawat hasn't done a lot of interviews about this. He was briefly sort of on CBC expressing his level of frustration that um, that he had tried. They had tried to approach BC Parks and negotiate something with them on how they needed to use the land, how they wanted to harvest and hunt and conduct their ceremonies, and and they they couldn't get anywhere with that. And so you're right, maybe there is. A solution here that involves part of the park where the public can still use it uh, but the government didn't engage in that and they allowed this to sort of uh, unfortunately kind of blow up on them and this is the result it is a very busy park it is uh, you know a, a traffic problem that's why they have the day pass it is a social media darling of a park everyone's there shooting instagram videos and uh, tiktok videos and stuff but uh, you know uh, 
the, the province is hoping they can find a way out of this. I think they'll have to go back and find out how it got so bad in the first place and figure out uh, how to prevent that again. Because there are other First Nations who have, you know, land claims on provincial parks who need to use them for their cultural traditions. And you don't want to start a precedent where nations just cut off the public because the, the provincial government is not listening to them uh, until they have to make that very dramatic gesture. Right. And even looking at the confusion of some of the people showing up at this park, that's only going to get worse, I would think, until they find a, a solution. Yeah, you have park rangers that are there uh, turning people away. And according to the minister, people have been fairly uh, understanding so far about it. But there is that confusion of folks who'd planned a last holiday or camping or or that kind of thing. And eventually, if this carries on, eventually, you know, you just you have to expect that at some point there'll be some type of conflict too. some folks will show up there trying to assert some type of freedom or, you know, whatever. Uh, and that's something everyone wants to avoid, too. So uh, a, an urgent situation from the minister willing to go up there himself and, and try to negotiate this. He's an old um, union negotiator, George Heyman. So it's, he has experience at the negotiating table, and uh, we'll see if they take him up on that offer. All right. Sounds good. Rob, thank you, and we'll talk to you tomorrow. Okay. Take care. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it certainly feels like we've seen strikes and job action this summer. Could there be more? That is what Mornings with Simi contributor Scott Chance is talking about now. Good morning again to you. Hi, Jill. How are you? Do you do you feel this that like more? We've seen a, a lot of strikes compared to normal. Mm. I don't know. I know the hotel workers. We've talked to them a few times. And yeah, there has been certainly some labor unrest. Yeah, it kind of feels like that to me. Uh, there's news today that auto workers on both sides of the border are voting to, to strike mandate as they're sort of in contract talks. Uh, so this could affect car production. Well, we're all, there's already like car shortages everywhere here and south of the border. It's why cars are so expensive. And it just it feels to me like everyone who's in a union kind of feels like, hey, it's time to get ours, you know? Hmm. And um, I'm like, we're not in a, I'm not in a union, you know? So I'm like, oh, is this, what is happening out there? We talk so much about inflation and cost of living and all of that type of stuff. And I had, I sort of wonder if this is like, um, like a balancing of the books, you know, like for the labor force on mass. So I got in touch with a professor of labor from York University. His name is Stephen Tuft, and he is like super familiar with all of this stuff. And I, I asked him about this, uh, you know, like, are we seeing more strike action than we normally would? How do you feel like, is it, is this something that we're likely to, to continue or is this kind of just, just par for the course? And here is what he said. What we're seeing is we are seeing a tiny upsurge in work stoppages for strikes and lockouts uh, following the pandemic. It's almost double the rate uh, we've uh, received in or experienced in the last couple of years. Uh, so that is significant. However, we have to put this in a broad context. The hours and person days lost to strikes currently are actually relatively minor compared to what we experienced in the 1970s, the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, where we had much more, uh, larger number of strikes that involved more people. But this, this, uh, what we're experiencing now is some significant strikes, some of them not necessarily having huge uh, person hours lost, but are really captured by the media, especially in the U.S., for example, with the writer's strike. 
Right. Yeah. And so is this because, and again, like sort of layman's interpretation here, just everything is so expensive and people just feel like I can't make ends meet anymore. Like we hear all these stories about inflation and stuff need more money. So we're just, that's, that seems like the next obvious answer is we're just going to go on strike or what's the reason? Well, there's a couple of things that, um, that have been noted by my colleagues and a lot of people who are following strike activity in the recent months. Uh, first of all, you're coming out of a pandemic where, in some cases, uh, a lot of workers felt disrespected. They were laid off. Uh, sometimes they were put in dangerous positions or felt they were exposed to the disease more than others. And disrespect also is the one of the major um, components that lead to, to strikes and, and upsurges in labor militancy. Second of all is that you do have a high period of inflation. Even though inflation's come down in recent months, it's still very high in two major areas, and that is groceries and mortgage rates and rents, uh, two major costs that people and working people face. So you are put in a position where if you don't demand extra money from your employer, you are going to fall behind. And there was some falling behind over the last couple of years, so workers have to catch up. The other issue that I think is really important uh, to put into context is that we're, you know, seeing a little bit more sympathy for workers who are struggling, and that allows workers to express solidarity and get a little bit more confidence to take on big employers that are not only unpopular, such as Amazon, um, UPS, in some cases governments, um, but also have the propensity in many cases to pay because profits have been quite high. Hmm. So we put all of this together and where you have people who are falling behind, people who need to pay rent, buy groceries, and then having employers that in many cases simply have the money to pay. Um, they do have, they are very profitable. Um, you're going to have a series of, of strikes. Right. And do we think that this is sort of the, um, I don't know, like the, the balancing of the books, like the redistribution of the wealth or, um, you know, like I've long heard my mother is a huge union advocate and, <laughs> and, uh, you know, like she, she's like, Oh, in the forties and the fifties, this is how we did it. This is how, you know, and, uh, I've, I've never been in a union. I'm not in a union. Um, yeah. it like, is this likely to create uh, big change? Like, are, is this going to lead to more companies going on strike? And sort of my next question beyond that, because maybe these two tie together, what about people who aren't in unions? You know, if people in unions yeah. get their pay raised, what about the rest of us? That's like, oh, well, these guys just got stuck with minimum wage because they're not in a union and they can't. How do you advocate for yourself if you're not in a union? That's, that's a great question. And they are um, related. First of all, it is true, there is some evidence that strikes lead to further strikes. It's called a demonstration effect. So when one worker, set of workers go out, especially if they're successful, other workers get the confidence to also demand more from their employers. Now for the non-union workers, this is what happens. Sometimes, um, you know, the, the, the boats raise and other workers come up with it. If unionized workers get, get raises, then eventually non-union employers who still have to compete in the labor market do have to pay more. 
And what we're seeing now with some labor shortages in non-union workplaces is that employers are, in fact, having to pay, to pay more for the simple reason to attract workers. Because we also have, and this is something that's not really discussed, is we do have what some people are referring to as a generational labor shortage. And what that means is that the workers do have a little bit more power in the labor market to demand higher wages uh, because there's fewer workers available for employers to choose from. And that's been a challenge to, to many employers in several sectors. So that's, again, leading to maybe a little bit more militancy. Now, the overall question that you started with, which is, is this a sea change or is this the beginning of a new upsurge of labor militancy? That's debated by labor scholars. Some people are quite optimistic. Some people are a little less uh, um, optimistic or want to qualify things a bit. I sort of fall on that side. Um, we are seeing more strikes, but relative to the strike activity that we experienced in the previous decades of the 1940s up into the 1980s, this is actually quite minor. That's Professor Stephen Tufts. He's a professor of labor geography at York University. And Jill, the line that stood out to me from that entire interview was where he said, if you don't demand extra money from your employer, you're going to fall behind. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's kind of always been the case, really. You have to be your own advocate and go out there and get get what you think you deserve. I, 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 yes, I agree with that. But like, I always, I like the idea that companies kind of adhere to this, like, hey, cost of living increase because, you know, we understand it's expensive for you. So annual raise to keep up with inflation keeps everybody happy, keeps the employees here, keeps the, keeps the whole system going, you know, mm-hmm. like, and I feel like my contribution to our employer, whom I love, uh, it should, you know, should be enough to say like, yes, okay, well, here's, here's the raises that you all deserve so that we can keep doing the wonderful business that we do, you know, but it doesn't work like that, unfortunately. And then, like he said, it often leads to, to these things. And that's where you have to advocate for yourself. But it's also interesting to, like we were talking about off the top, uh, it feels like so much, so much, uh, labor action, but in his mind, this is really quite minor. Yeah, looking at, uh, I was trying to think, the list, the port strike, uh, he mentioned the writer's strike, uh, like you said, we might see auto workers, so all, all big deals and mm-hmm. big strikes, but uh, yeah, certainly nothing when we used to see QP went on strike earlier this year, right? There, there was a government worker strike. Or is that, that's not QP, but there was a government worker strike earlier this BC, year. The BC government, uh, general government, general workers union, Yeah, general workers mm-hmm. assembly, I think. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, there certainly has been. Yes, there has been a job action, uh, definitely. So uh, interesting conversation. Thank you, Scott. You're welcome. This is Mornings with Simi. A bit later on in the program, we are going to check in with BC's housing minister. Right now, though, we are taking a look at a creative solution, or at least an attempt at a creative solution, to help find the housing needed for students, post-secondary students on Vancouver Island. And joining me to talk more about this is Michael Whitcomb, off-campus housing coordinator for Vancouver Island University. Thank you so much for being with us. Jill, good morning. Thanks very much for having me on. Well, this is a, an interesting way of addressing this, and certainly it's not only on Vancouver Island. There are so many places where post-secondary students are unable to find adequate housing. So what is this lawn sign campaign doing, or, or what is the, this uh, creative solution? Thank you, yes. So uh, we're in partnership with a listing service called PlaysesForStudents.com and they uh, are in partnership with a number of uh, higher ed institutions around the country. 
Um, their um, initiative uh, last year, uh, you know, really sort of coming out of the pandemic, um, was to uh, offer into the mix uh, the, the lawn sign campaign. Um, they've provided the artwork for this. They've included, uh, you know, our logo on it. Uh, so it's, uh, you know, specific to VIU. Um, and, you know, we make up these lawn signs and we put them out around the city. We've had, uh, you know, a number of staff take them out and put them in, uh, you know, really great visible locations around town. Uh, and also, you know, I've been out there myself, you know, putting them in the, in the verges. Uh, we did this last year. And of course, we do this in conjunction with, you know, social media campaigns uh, and uh, any other sort of word of mouth campaign that we can. Uh, and it, it proves incredibly successful. Uh, last year, uh, we had a lot of inquiries. And this year, uh, you know, starting from uh, August, we we're putting the signs out and we're getting people phoning us up saying, I've seen you sign at the side of the road. I've got a room in my house and, you know, hadn't maybe thought of letting to a student before, uh, but this seems like an idea, you know, how can I go about it? And when somebody does enter into that agreement then or rents out to a student, are there safeguards Mm -hmm. in place? And that I know most of the time, I think it works out fine, but if things go sideways, are there protections in there for both parties? So, yeah, I mean, in a a, um, straight up rental situation, of course, people are governed by the RTA uh, and I'm happy to to counsel students and and give general advice to, to landlords, especially new landlords as well. Um, we've got a landlord page on our website uh, that uh, gives people lots of uh, information, links through to residential tenancy agreements and things like that. Uh, so hopefully, you know, it's a bit of a help up into that market. Um, when somebody's letting out a room in their home, they step out of the, the residential tenancy um, uh, law. Uh, and, you know, the person coming in to, to live in their home with them is more like a lodger, you know, like a student, um, student roommate, basically. Um, no, they're not governed by the same law uh, as residential tenancy agreements are. Uh, so what I've done is to create uh, a suggested agreement that, that uh, landlords and, and students alike can use. Uh, it follows the spirit of the residential tenancy agreements in terms of things like uh, payment scheduling, uh, notice periods, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But then there's lots of information about emergency contacts uh, and areas for people to kind of get it down on paper what their shared responsibilities are around the house. So hopefully, you know, just preempting any of those issues before they even pop up. Hmm. What do you see as the, the biggest obstacles or are people, can they be reluctant about moving into a situation where they're renting a room and share, having shared spaces, maybe with people, complete strangers or, or do you see people kind of getting over that? We encourage people to, you know, just think carefully about their needs and preferences. Um, you know, so if somebody has dietary requirements, for example, or pet allergies or, you know, their course hours or work hours, if, you know, if they're, they're the homeowner, for example, uh, might, you know, might cause issues. And, you know, we just ask people to think those things through so that everybody does their homework in advance. Um, but, you know, nine times out of ten or more, we're finding that the people who are opening up rooms in their homes, uh, these are the people who, they're not traditional landlords. They are particularly interested in perhaps taking in an international student. Um, you know, it's something that appeals to them. Yes, of course, it's going to bring in some extra income into their home. And, you know, at the moment, I think a lot of people are grateful for that. Uh, but also, it's a way of meeting somebody uh, that they might not have met before. We hear lots of lovely stories about people, you know, taking in an international student, striking up a friendship and perhaps remaining friends for, you know, for a long time to come. Um, so, you know, I think the people that are interested in this rather than the traditional renting route 
they are looking forward to kind of forging those kind of relationships and, and, and making those bonds anyway. And what kind of savings are people looking at as far as if we're looking at post-secondary students renting a room in a house as opposed to if they can find a studio or a, a one-bedroom apartment? What, what's kind of the cost difference? Sure. Well, around Nanaimo, I think if you're, you know, just looking for a one-bed place, you might be looking at sort of fourteen, fifteen hundred dollars a month. Uh, and for, you know, 99% of the students that I speak to, that's out of their reach. Uh, so I'm often saying to people, well, look, if you can buddy up with a couple of housemates, that's great. And also consider, you know, moving in with an owner-landlord. Uh, if they're sharing a kitchen or bathroom or both with, with the, the owner-landlord, then they're into that kind of roommate situation. And then typically, you know, seven, eight, nine hundred dollars seems to be about the going price at the moment. So a significant savings then if this is an arrangement that works for you. That's right. And that's about the sweet spot for a lot of the students that I speak to as well. It's about how much they budget for their rent. Uh, And, you know, no doubt it's welcome income for the household as well. Do you see this as a long-term solution or is it more pointing at the fact that there is a severe housing shortage and maybe there needs to be more attention paid to when we have post-secondary institutions, there needs to be housing provided or at least housing available? Yeah, I think it's part of the mix, of course, uh, and I'd be interested to hear your conversation with the housing minister later on, you know, obviously. But, uh, you know, I think what we're seeing in Nanaimo is a, is a fast-growing city. It's a popular place to be for all sorts of folks from around the island, uh, also, you know, beyond into the province and, uh, and countrywide. Uh, so we need to look at a creative mix of solutions, of which this is one part. Uh, obviously, it's going to be great when the housing market is stimulated and we're seeing lots more, you know, l- lower income, um, you know, available properties coming onto the market. We don't want to be, you know, there uh, putting pressure on the traditional rental market as well. Um, so this is something that we can appeal to the community to open up a room in their homes, uh, you know, and just take our part. Uh, you'll know that there's new building going on on the campus as well. So there'll be another 300 students or so accommodated on campus, you know, in the next couple of years. Um, but, you know, it's also, you know, this room in the house solution is just one part of that overall solution, I think. I understand as well that you also work with local hotels to try and uh, get discounted rates or to use some hotel rooms for, for solutions when it comes to housing? That's right. Uh, you know, it is still tourist season, um, so it's a little bit of a tricky ask. But we've had uh, around four hotels this year. Uh, who've been great and stepped up and said, yep, you know, if people are genuinely BIU students, uh, then they will offer them a, a discount of one sort or another, depending on the hotel. Um, so, you know, students in a, in a bit of a fix can get in touch with me and I can connect them up with those deals. And is that what you hear? Is housing kind of the biggest concern for students as far as getting set up and going to post-secondary? Um, from my perspective, I'd say yes, but that's the that's the nature of the inquiry that I get, of course. Um, you know, but I think you know, I deal uh, at least seventy five percent with international students, and for them, you know, just having the security of knowing that they can book somewhere safely before they come, oftentimes, uh, or if they come, they can find somewhere short term that's not going to cost them an arm and a leg. Uh, and whatever I can do to to help buffer both of those situations, you know, I'm I'm there trying to do that for them. Michael Whitcomb, thank you so much for your time and for sharing this with us this morning. Appreciate it. Jill, thanks ever so much for having me on. I appreciate it too. This is Mornings with Simi. 
The BC government has announced its intention to finance the construction of more than 3,000 new rental homes, and these will be targeted for individuals with moderate and low incomes. So how will this work and what will it look like? Joining us now to talk more about this is Ravi Kalon, BC's Minister of Housing. Minister, thank you so much for your time this morning. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us a bit more about how this will work, because it talks about the intention to finance and that nonprofit organizations are invited to take part in this. How will this actually work? Well, the intake is open. Uh, we did have uh, uh, two other intakes uh, in the last five years where not-for-profits, uh, co-ops, uh, Indigenous-led societies, or even local governments could apply directly to build this type of housing. Uh, we know uh, that there's a big demand. We know there's a lot of not-for-profits that are ready to go with applications. And what we're doing here is we're doing a couple things. One, we're saying the intake is open, uh, that they can apply those that are shovel-ready can get in the door right away. But we've also signaled to them that the intakes won't happen now every two, three years. What will happen is every single year. So those not-for-profits that are not ready right away don't need to, you know, have a freak out moment to say, hey, you know what, let's plan for the next intake so there's some certainty available for them. And how do you make it uh, attractive for organizations to take part in this and to build this specific type of housing? Well, there's a huge demand for it. I mean, we had for almost two decades very little housing invested in this type of category, and the demand has only been building and building and building. And so there's just a lot of partners that have been waiting uh, for this type of fund to be open so that they can apply. Uh, it obviously comes with deep subsidies. It comes with ongoing dollars to ensure that uh, especially those that are in vulnerable populations can continue to get the supports that they need. Uh, we were able to announce it yesterday at a site in South Vancouver, which was one of the funds in the early uh, five years ago that got the money is open and has people moved in and, and uh, obviously, you know, life changing for those individuals. But we know there's so many more people that need that type of support. And that's why we're you know, making this investment. That's why we're, uh, you know, opening up the intake for applications. And are you working with civic governments then as well? And I know this is a, a different kind of housing, but if we look at a project in Victoria, that neighbors, there has been massive opposition to this project, hundreds, uh, more than a thousand signatures to, uh, to against this property. And we do see that in different areas. How are you working with civic governments to make sure these types of developments and these developments are approved? Well, I'm not sure about the specific project in Victoria that you refer to, but I would say that um, uh, you know, all projects that we have, they still go through local governments. They still have to get the local government uh, permitting done. Uh, but, you know, the, one of the challenging things for me is, uh, you know, everyone tells me we're in a housing crisis. Everyone says that we need housing, understands we need housing, but nobody wants housing in their backyard. Uh, we need to get past that. We need to find ways to get housing built and get it built faster. Otherwise, this crisis will just prolong, get longer and longer, and more people will become vulnerable.
Right. So, so the um, the project in Victoria is the, the Bayview Place development, and this is on the, the Roundhouse site in Victoria. And a lot of neighbours have come forward saying that it's too big. This is a project that would see, I think, nine towers, anywhere from 18 to 29 storeys. Uh, but again, we see uh, there's even a group in this case. Uh, it's called People for Sensible Rezoning, saying that it doesn't fit the neighbourhood. But we, we do see that uh, in other places as well. We've seen your government uh, tell Vancouver residents uh, of a specific neighborhood that they are getting a development whether they like it or not do you do you see that you have to do more kind of overstepping in that to make sure that civic councils are approving them well in the case of the, the vancouver proposal it had already gotten through council it already gone through public hearing uh, and we were just not prepared to have it relitigated again after uh, more than two years of going back and forth but, you know, what we have said clearly is that housing needs to get built faster. Uh, we believe the public should have a say in what happens in their communities, but that should happen in the planning. Communities should have a say in what should get built, what kind of heights, if it's uh, if, if part of the community plan. Once the community plan is, is uh, agreed upon, then projects that come within the community plan should be able to proceed in a much faster way. But yet what we have now is, communities get engaged, they have a community plan, and then every time somebody comes forward that fits within the community plan, they have to go through that entire process again. And and that's just unacceptable in, in the housing crisis that we're in now. Uh, you talked about these, so this fund and people being able to apply from this fund and the ongoing subsidies uh, for nonprofits or other groups that are interested in building this uh, housing that is targeted at people with, with mid or, or low incomes. Do you wish that the federal government was playing a bigger role or continued to play a bigger role? Because certainly there have been calls uh, for the federal government uh, in light of some of the prime minister's recent comments that they should get back into cooperative housing, back into the housing file. Well, well, they must, uh, and uh, and they do have a responsibility. And you know, our message from British Columbia to them has been, if we don't want you to lead, we want you to just match us. Uh, just match uh, the fundings that we've put in place uh, for the various programs we have, because that will in itself make a major, major difference in, uh, in our housing um, uh, stock, our housing supply in British Columbia. And, and so... You know, I would say that we're in conversations with them. I'm cautiously optimistic that they'll come forward with um, the, the type of ambitious plan that, uh, that we certainly need, not only in B.C., but across the country. Uh, I was speaking earlier uh, this morning as well with the off-campus coordinator for Vancouver Island University. Uh, they're pairing up post-secondary students with people that have rooms in their homes uh, to rent out, uh, much cheaper than trying to find uh, a one-bedroom or a studio apartment. Uh, is that a creative solution, do you think? Or does that show that uh, we're not prioritizing housing, that, that uh, when it comes to post-secondary, there needs to be uh, maybe a housing requirement or, or, or schools need to provide housing? Or what are your thoughts on on groups trying to find these creative solutions? Well, I think all of those things, you know, I think that, uh, you know, it's great to see uh, creative solutions being uh, brought up uh, where uh, post-secondary institutions are trying their best to make sure their uh, students have the appropriate housing uh, available to them. But also, I believe that we need to build more student housing. If you look at uh, the last 20 years, there was about 137 student housing units funded by the province. Uh, just in the last five years, we have 8,000 of them uh, going, either built or, or under construction. And, and, we're, and we're behind even with that. And so I think it's going to require creative solutions. It's going to re- require us to be building more 
on-campus housing uh, because that's actually the quickest way to relieve pressure on the housing market. Uh, And again, you know, I know there's been a big call of the federal government to get involved as well. And again, same message is we have an ambitious plan here in British Columbia. Our plan is leading the country. We're saying match us because when you take students and allow them to be closer to campus, it's better for the environment. It's it's healthier for these uh, young minds uh, for the future, but it takes pressure off the community at, at large as well. Minister Kalon, thank you so much. As always, appreciate your time this morning. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Be safe. This is Mornings with Simi. In keeping with our theme, talking about housing, we are now taking a look at the BC Real Estate Association. The association is out with some new numbers. This is the 2023 first quarter housing forecast. So what is in that forecast? Brendan Ogmanson joins us now, Chief Economist of the BC Real Estate Association. Brendan, great to have you back on the show. Good morning, good to be here. Good morning. How are things looking as far as this forecast and what we're seeing, uh, sales and prices? Well, let's start uh, with residential sales. Yeah, I think that the theme for this year has really been resilience. We thought that the market would would, uh, be a lot more impacted by the highest interest rates we've seen in in more than a decade. Uh, And yet sales have held up pretty well. So, you know, we are expecting sales to dip by about 3% this year. But that's, that's revised up from, you know, an expectation of sales falling about 10%. So sales are, are holding fairly steady, uh, surprisingly, uh, and, uh, and prices are, are only expected to be down about 2% year over year. Uh, and in many cases are, are, are kind of higher by this point than they, they were at the start of the year. So a uh, really interesting, resilient market so far. Hmm. And when you look at that difference then with the expected dip, uh, like you said, being around 10%, it's now going to be around 3%. What do you think caused that change? It was really all about uh, a couple of months at the, at the, during the spring of this year. We started the year very weak. We were uh, tracking at close to a, a record low for sales uh, in January, February, March. And then kind of April, May, June, suddenly sales surged back to, to kind of normal levels, which was very surprising. Uh, and now they're back to about 10 to 15% below normal. So I think a lot of that really unexpected rise in sales probably had a lot to do with the Bank of Canada uh, in January, uh, providing a bit of certainty about mortgage costs when they were, when they were on a pause that they are now off of. Uh, and now, you know, what, you know, the Bank of Canada is raising rates again, or at least in June and July, uh, we're kind of back to, to maybe a bit of uncertainty about rates and, and therefore sales will come down. Right. So the resiliency then with with the home sales or with the prices directly linked to the higher interest rates and looking forward then if we're if we see things kind of going in the other direction, if maybe more rates, but then with the rate cuts, how do you think that's going to impact things moving forward? It, re- it really depends all on the Bank of Canada and timing. And there was a, you know, for a lot of this year, there was the expectation that rates would be coming down maybe by the end of this year. And if not by the end of this year, perhaps in 2024, I think a lot of those expectations have been pushed off to, to maybe early 2025. So mortgage, you know, fixed mortgage rates are, are rising. Uh, variable rates, of course, went up at the Bank of Canada. I do expect uh, that rates will probably start to come down later next year, and that should provide a bit of a boost on the, on the demand side. Um, the, the issue, as always, in Vancouver and in BC is supply. We don't have enough listings, and that's why prices have held up really, really well. 
we just haven't seen an increase in listings at all this year. Uh, and, and, you know, even with small, you know, you have, you have demand that's, that's below normal, that's enough just to keep prices pretty steady or, or increasing in some cases. Right. So the inventory is still a pretty uh, big factor in this and that low inventory. It, it is. And it, it's been that way for, for several years now. And it's, you know, a part of it is, is also linked to interest rates. There's a bit of a lock-in effect. If you, you know, took out a mortgage on, on, a, on a, you bought a home in the, during the pandemic and got a mortgage at 2% or even renewed your mortgage around, uh, around that time at, at 2% or, or, uh, or around there. If you want to move, in many cases, you're going to have to get a new mortgage, and that new mortgage is going to be, you know, close to six percent. So a lot of what we're seeing is is people uh, hesitant to maybe to maybe list their home, if, even if they want to move, because it just means much higher mortgage costs and breaking that very very favorable mortgage. Right, so, which makes a lot of sense. I know this is anecdotal, but even just looking around different neighborhoods, when you see listings going up, they seem to still be selling really quickly. And you see that sold sticker or sign going up, but pretty soon after the initial listing. Are you seeing that as well, that when we do see, and, and I'm sure that's linked to inventory as well, though when things do go on the market, they sell pretty fast. Yeah, you know, even though sales are, are a little lower than normal, because supply is so low, and there is a lot, you know, still demand out there, if, if uh, you know, properties come onto the market that people maybe have been waiting for for the past year, and, and prices are a bit lower than they were at the peak, uh, those, those properties, if priced right, are going very quickly, uh, because they're just, there's really not a lot out there to, to purchase. So when we talk to realtors on the ground, uh, if, if, uh, if homes are priced right, they move very quickly. And when you look at the prices, then, if we're looking at average prices, is it still kind of around the 900000 or $1 million mark? Yeah, so we started the year a little low. I think we actually started the year, and the average price in BC was actually a bit below 900000 We've seen a lot of volatility in prices this year, as you tend to with average prices. Uh, more expensive markets uh, were a lot weaker at the start of the year, and now have started to really pick up, especially markets in the Fraser Valley. Uh, and, and as a result, we've seen the average price kind of fluctuate from below 900000 to slightly above a million. We're sort of trending now uh, for BC around 975 For Vancouver, we're, we're not that far from peak. The average price in Vancouver in, in August is going to be pretty close to $1.3 million, So it really has barely budged uh, since, since its peak. Um, and then next year, we're expecting prices to be a little bit above a million dollars on average in BC. And that's just, you know, a function of there's a bunch of markets, Victoria, Fraser Valley, Vancouver, um, even Cholac kind of getting, getting close sometimes that are near a million dollars. And as a result, you know, the average price of the province is, is, is around that, you know, somewhat what would have been a kind of an unthinkable mark years ago. But, you know, here we are. Hmm. Interesting. And, w- and when you mentioned some of the different areas of the province there, are you seeing any standouts? Uh, I know we've talked about the Fraser Valley uh, before or Vancouver Island. Is there any area that kind of stands out that, that's seeing a different trend or isn't quite following along uh, what we're seeing uh, elsewhere? There's some markets that have been, uh, I guess what I would describe as just like aggressively normal, <laughs> considering what's happened with other markets. So like, the Kootenai and, and the North, uh, the most affordable markets, and you know the Kootenai is, has demographics that skew a bit older, uh, and a lot of kind of you know not a lot of, of mortgage debt in those markets. Um, those are markets that really have shrugged off these rate hikes completely and have had very very kind of normal uh, years. Uh, you know, down a bit in sales, but you know coming off decent decent levels. So uh, those markets are certainly been different. The other one is. Vancouver has been 
pretty boring uh, the last couple of years. You know, it didn't have the same increase during the pandemic as other markets. I mean, it certainly went up, but not not you know like the Fraser Valley or seventy percent in prices. Um, uh, and and sales have been very steady. Prices have been very steady. It's you know usually Vancouver is where all the fireworks are, and this has been a, a pretty steady foreign market for Vancouver the past couple of years. I, I think though, when we're talking real estate, maybe not in other areas, but it's not so bad to be boring, is it? Boring is great. Uh, I've been I've been doing uh, this for for close to a decade now, and I've been hoping for a very boring market where prices are are you know, growing with inflation and sales and sales are just kind of average. Um, we're maybe around there. It's not quite boring enough for me, given what's happened with interest rates this year and inflation. But one day, perhaps in my career, we'll get to a point where, uh, where there's not a whole lot to talk about in the housing market. <laughs> and uh, Brendan, just once again with the forecast moving ahead, what what would be the kind of the biggest thing you're looking for uh, as moving forward? Yeah, it's, it's kind of the same story as, as it's been for the last uh, two years. We need inflation to come back down to to uh, to two percent. It's, it's kind of stuck between three and four. I do think the Bank of Canada will probably hold off on, on a rate hike uh, next week. Uh, but it's really about if inflation, if inflation come down, and we need therefore for the Bank of Canada to start normalizing its overnight rate from you know, 5% back to like a 2 to 3% range. And that will help uh, give a bit of a, uh, you know, a bit of a, a salve to, to affordability, perhaps, uh, in, the, in the Vancouver and, and, and BC market. Bring those those mortgage rate costs down. That's what I'm watching the next of the next year. That's what everyone is watching. Is really do we get interest rates coming down as expected? Do we avoid a recession? We so far have. Everyone was talking about a recession at the start of the year. Now everyone's talking about a soft landing. Hopefully that comes true. We don't have to have any uh, any significant disruptions in the economy. Brendan uh, Augmentson, uh, thank you so much. As always, appreciate your time this morning. Thank you, Nathan.